Those are two of our worship interns on each side right here. Uh, awesome job. Awesome job, guys. Um, all right, so reconciliation. Great when we need somebody to do it with us. Bad when we're told that we need to do it with somebody else. And yet that's exactly what the Bible asks us to do. Uh, I want to take you back to before the story of Joseph. Jacob, Joseph's dad, one of the great weasels of Scripture, cheats his brother out of the birthright, cheats him out of the blessing by dressing up like his brother to his blind father who feels the goat skin that he's duct taped to his arms and says, oh, that's Esau. Is that you, Esau? Yeah, it's me. Yeah, it's me, Dad. And he goes ahead and he cheats him out of it, takes the blessing. There's a financial incentive to do it, but more than that, it was, it was honor. It was irrevocable. So once his dad gave it, then Esau comes running in after the fact, and his younger brother has taken it away from him with the help of his own mother. Okay, that doesn't go down smooth. Esau, big burly guy, professional hunter, Jacob knows, uh, can kill things. Esau's good at that, and he can, that includes younger brothers. So he takes off, lands eventually at Uncle Laban's house, who is also a weasel. Weasel runs in the family. And this time, uh, he falls in love with Laban's uh, second oldest daughter. Her name's Rachel. So he says, I'd like to marry her. He says, great, you need to work seven years for her. And so he's like, no problem. So he works seven years, and Uncle Laban says, here you go, here's Leah. Who's that? I, wa I wanted to marry Rachel. And he says, yeah, but you, you got to marry her first. If you want Rachel, you have to work another seven years. So he does that. He works 14 years. And then there's some more chicanery there at the house. And then eventually, um, uh, you know, he gets swindled out of some more stuff. Laban continues to try to cheat him. And he's, he's got a pretty sizable little uh, set of forces with him. Uh, so he actually is in pursuit of Jacob. Eventually, they work out a deal. Laban cease and desist, but Jacob sets himself free. He's got Rachel, who he now has two bouncing uh, baby boys with by the name of Benjamin and another young kid named Joseph. Actually, he doesn't have Benjamin yet. He has Joseph, though. So he's got one bouncing baby boy. Cool coat on the kid, too, that his dad gave him, showing he's the favorite. Jacob... Still kind of on the run, fresh off that conflict. And his comrades then tell him, hey, Jacob, I got some bad news for you. I know I'm really glad that we got rid of Laban. The problem is, though, Esau. Remember him, your older brother that you cheated out of things? The big, hairy dude. The red guy. That's what his name means. Red. Because he has a dark complexion to him. And they say, he, he's on his way. The hunter. Yeah, there's really no way to get around it. He's just on the other side of that hill. There's no roads, anything like that. We have to go through him. There's no chance. Is there a way we can get around it? Nope. You mean I have to go face Esau right now, right after I just shook Laban? Yep. Okay. So Jacob's face is drawn. He's finally got Rachel. He's got, or he had Rachel. He's got Benjamin. I keep messing that up. Joseph and Rachel. There we go. This man uses words for living people. So, anyways, I'm sitting there and I, I, I look at this procession, how exasperating it must have been to finally get to go realize your life dream, only to realize I'm about to be dead at the hands of my own brother, who I, uh, you know, jilted back a long time ago. So he says, in typical weasel fashion, uh, let's take the women and children and put them out front. Now, you'll notice this becomes a trend. So, even when he's going to meet Joseph, Jacob will send Judah out in front of him. 
He says, and by the way, take some animals to it and give them, offer him the goats and the, you know, the cattle and things like that as an offering. And maybe he'll not kill us. So here they come, big caravan in the front, keeps Rachel in the back. And he's like, here's Esau. And he looks and the weirdest thing happens. Esau doesn't grab the cattle. Esau doesn't take out his sword and start slaying people. He makes his way to Jacob, and he embraces him. He embraces him. Jacob, it's so good to see you, and he hugs him. Jacob goes, wow, it's not what I was expecting. And he says this, Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God because you have dealt favorably with me. Keep that in mind. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God because you've been favorable to me. You could have killed me. You could have whacked the whole family. You could have gotten it, and I'm not sure anybody would have thought it was a bad idea. But instead, you dealt favorably with me, and so seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Well, who's this? Who's this strapping lad? Well, that's my boy Joseph. The one with the cool jacket? Yeah, that's him, Joseph. Joseph, meet your uncle, Uncle Esau. Hey, Uncle Esau. Then they go on from there, Jacob and his family. Not too far after that, Joseph will be sold out by his own brothers. Sold into slavery. Spends time as a slave, ends up then rising up into Potiphar's house. Then ends up going to jail for something he didn't do. Spends time in prison through a long series of events, ends up second to Pharaoh. And just then, his brothers come in looking for grain during a time of of famine, and he's got control over the, the whole food supply of the natural earth at the time. So what do you do? Tell them, sorry guys, should have thought about that before you sold me into slavery. Hey, they're here. Uh, Guys, get the guards, take them out. Beat them up, throw them in a pit. See how, let them see how it feels. Maybe I'll take you guys and make you slaves. How about that? And that's not what he does. One after another, he finds ways to take some step. Now, you can tell he's still hurt by it because every time he has an encounter with the brothers, he has to gather himself because he starts to break down and cry. Now, God has helped him forget what had happened to him. And, and he wasn't dominating his life to the point that he names his own sons Manasseh. God helped me forget. Ephraim. Twice fruitful. God made me fruitful here in the land of my suffering. But his brothers come and he finally reveals his identity. They are shocked. And just like Esau had grabbed a hold of Jacob, he grabs a hold of his brothers. And they're shocked. Pharaoh hears that this has happened and he says, Joseph has brothers? This is amazing. His dad is still alive? Well, here's what we need to do. Tell those brothers to go back Get their father, come back, and all of Egypt is theirs. The best land, the best food, the best wine, anything for my comrade Joseph. Anybody who's a friend of Joseph is a friend of mine. And so Joseph says, yeah, you heard the Pharaoh. Go back and get dad. Let's have dad here. Old man Jacob is well north of 100 years old, at 100, pushing 130. So traveling is not really his thing at this point. His boys, though, go back. Here's what happens. 
Joseph sent his brothers off, Genesis 45, 24 to 28. And as they left, he called after them, don't quarrel about, <laughs> don't quarrel about all this along the way. He's saying, don't argue. Parents, you know what I'm talking about here, right? Kids, don't argue on the way, all right? Then they left Egypt and returned to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. Joseph is still alive. Joseph is still alive, <laughs> they told him. And he's governor of all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned at the news. He couldn't believe it. But when they repeated to Jacob everything Joseph had told them, and when he saw the wagons Joseph had sent to carry him, like as in, where'd you get all this stuff? It must be true, he's thinking to himself, right? It says, their father's spirits revived. Then Jacob exclaimed, it must be true. My son Joseph is alive, and I must go see him before I die. And so they pack up, and off he goes to see Joseph. In the middle, he kind of there's this situation where he prays to God, kind of asking for blessings on the journey. God says, I will bless you. I am in this. Jacob offers sacrifices, and then they get there. And in true Jacobian fashion, he sends Judah ahead of him, not knowing what to expect, I think. Genesis 46, 28 to 30. As they neared their destination, Jacob sent Judah ahead to meet Joseph and get directions to the region of Goshen. And when they finally arrived there, Joseph prepared his chariot and traveled to Goshen to meet his father, Jacob. And get this part. When Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and wept, holding him for a long time. Finally, Jacob said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen your face again and I know you're still alive. All right, movies have alternative endings. You may not know this, but when people are coming out with a film, they'll often show it to a, a little select audience and get their take on the movie. And sometimes the audience goes, we hate the ending. And so they'll rewrite the ending. Some of your favorite movies had different endings originally. The Lion King had a different ending. Pretty in Pink. Uh, the original, she ends up with Ducky, not Blaine. I know, tell you what, I know. Um, uh, Rocky, different ending originally. So the audience sees it and they go, ah, boo, we don't like that. When you read this story and you see this family reunion, doesn't that feel good? Doesn't it feel good to see Joseph second in command saving the world through his leadership, forgiving his brothers, reunited with his father after all these years, and Joseph's take on it is God used what you did, your sinfulness toward me, to put me in the seat I'm in now so that I can save your life and the lives of all of Israel. So he sees the point and the suffering. He's got a wonderful perspective on it. Doesn't change the pain. He still weeps. He still grieves what was lost there. But he at least kind of sees the point. We get a chance, sisters and brothers, to choose how some of our stories end. To give it an alternate ending. I mean, think about what he could have done. Right? He could have, uh, brothers come in, throw them in the pit. Brothers come in, sell them into slavery. Brothers come in, kill them. Uh, brothers come in, I'm not going to give you any food. I'll let you live, and I'm not going to call you in as a slave, and I'm going to do this. He, he could have done a whole bunch of different things. He could have said, don't tell dad I'm alive. He could have, I mean, there's a whole way, bunch of ways you could write the story. Let me, let me ask you to, to call to mind a particular situation or two where you've got a rupture in a relationship with somebody. And begin to ask yourself, how would God want this story to end? 
Would he want me to continue to not speak to the person for the rest of my natural-born life? Or would he want me to do it differently? And I'm going to use the term reconciliation today a lot. And that's, uh, as the term sounds, where people are reconciled to one another. It's a Bible term for what happens between us and God through the death of Jesus. We were enemies of God. Our sins separated us from God. The death of Christ brings us back together with God. It's the equivalent of God throwing His arms around us and weeping for joy, like the prodigal son story, where the son comes home and the father welcomes him home and hugs him and says, put a robe on him, put a, put a ring on his finger, and let's celebrate, okay? That, that's reconciliation. What was broken is now brought together. What was broken is now healed. Uh, story, kind of small potatoes, but it makes the point. There was a, a case in Salem, Massachusetts, where a couple of boys decided to start a lemonade stand. It was close to a, uh, like a, a, one of those hot link stands where they make hot dogs and sausages and stuff at lunchtime, and they also sold lemonade. So we had competition. Little boys, the sausage stand. Somebody got tired of these kids taking up some of their revenue, so one of the, somebody that worked at the sausage stand called the police and said they don't have a permit to sell lemonade. So the cops come in, they investigate, and they, the kids don't have the permit. The permit costs 2200 bucks to get a resale license in Salem, Massachusetts. So they forcibly shut the kids' lemonade stand down. Now, the, the guy that ran the hot dog stand or whatever, he didn't, he didn't want to shut it down. He just wanted them to move further away from his actual cart. But this creates a mess. The parents of these kids go bananas. The whole neighborhood rises up in these kids' defense. And they get mad at the sausage guy, and they start boycotting the sausage stand. And this thing starts turning into a big deal. So the mayor of Salem, to his credit, decides he's going to intervene. So he comes together with everybody and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. How about this? How about we get these kids to move down a little bit from your, your place, and you bring them on as subcontractors under your business and let them have their stand, and they can use your permit? He says, yeah. The kids are like, yay. Everybody's happy. Reconciliation. Broken. Rage versus rage. You know, there's a place in this world. Everyone gets what they deserve. It's called hell. Heaven is different. Heaven is the gathering of all the people who didn't get what they deserved. They got what God gave them in Christ. So when we pray that we want it to be as it is in heaven here on this earth, one of the things we're praying for is reconciliation. We're going to talk in fairly blunt terms about the subject today uh, because it's a priority for God, okay? You're going to get three little theological points that are big in Scripture, and then you're going to get five little how-tos and bullet boom, 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 boom at the end, all right, of how-tos. But these are big overarching principles, okay, that kind of fall under the heading of being able to help choose where the story goes. Reconciliation is God's priority. It's what brought Jesus to earth. It's what drove the passion of the Christ, okay? The desire to reconcile what was broken, the sinfulness of mankind, and God wanting to be restored to right relationship with his people and then that becomes a pattern, it becomes paradigmatic, if you will, for us. 
We're then called to the ministry of reconciliation to help people be reconciled to God and one to another. The Scripture talks in unequivocal terms about God's passion for this. Okay, I'll give you one passage, but there are literally hundreds of these. I could have picked any of them, all right? Here's one. This is from Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. So he and Israel are uh, at odds. Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, I could go all afternoon quoting verses about forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, how he's taken our sins as far as the east is from the west, how he remembers our sins no more, how, you know, he, oh, the lengths to which he's gone to forgive us, okay? This is not a hobby, a, a, a sideshow, something God is mildly interested in. It is the trajectory of the entire Scripture. Everything that happens is God putting this thing back together after we screwed it up back in the garden. It's about Him pulling all of this brokenness back together and mending it through the, His own grace, the, the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and the people of God then who take that ministry of reconciliation forward in the world we're living in. We live in a world that is a literal rage factory that is hell-bent on dividing people, getting them as angry as they can possibly be at each other, highlighting everything that anybody's ever done wrong to anybody, and then making sure that that remains the headline so that no possibility of bringing that together, reconciling, really exists. Because if it ever happened, what are we going to talk about then? And what Scripture says to me is, you know what, Tim? Here's something for you to dwell on. God has forgiven you, Tim Spivey, more then you will have to forgive anybody. Okay? So no matter what that, that imbalance looks like, right? No matter how, how much I feel like I'm obligated or I don't want to forgive you because of all the, all the things that have been done to me by people or, or whatever, that, that's a small little, you know, you know, that's dirt on the shoulder of, of God's uh, forgiveness of my debt. All right? And if we want to see the reconciliation of God's passion for it, then you look at the cross. He sends his own son to die for my sins. That, I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. It was me that did it. He sends his own son to die on the cross for my sins so that he and I can be reconciled to each other. Okay, that's how much God cares about reconciliation and my relationship to him. Then, step two is he then calls me to reconcile. Joseph, in our story, seems to reconcile almost impulsively because his brothers just kind of showed up unannounced. Now, I wonder, though, did he daydream, did he fantasize about what he would do if he ever saw them again? You ever do that? Boy, if I ever see that person, I'm going to, you know. That's why God gave me a foot. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. You know, that kind of thing. Like, Or I'm going to, you know, oh, they don't, boy, when I'm done with them, Mm. Now, what did he think about? Did he daydream about revenge? Or did he daydream about reunion? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure if he's a human being with blood in his veins, he probably fantasized somewhat about that. On the other hand, you, you wouldn't know it from what you see. It makes you think that this is what he actually wanted. 
deep down, was for them to be reconciled to each other. Reunion, not revenge. Did he play it out in his head? Let me ask you. What do you want for that broken relationship that I ask you to call to mind? Do you want reunion? I see the look on your face. No. (laughs) Why? Because for some reason it makes us feel better. Like we're punishing somebody else. I think there's a couple reasons. One is we're trying to protect ourselves. That's one. Not always an invalid thing. But the other is there's a pretty high degree of pride involved. And I'm going to get there in a second. But the root of God's asking us to reconcile is always rooted in what He did for us. Listen to this from Ephesians 4, 31 to 5, 2. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So the whole thing's based on that, right? Therefore, then, be imitators of God. Okay, Christ forgave me, or so now I'm imitating Him. Okay, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ Jesus loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, let's go back to the whole you know, being tantalized by the idea of revenge as opposed to reunion. Okay, one can definitely be a a desire to protect oneself. And so take into mind, by the way, uh, there are situations where if if you've been in an abusive relationship, something like that, where what reconciliation doesn't mean is you going back into that relationship. It might mean you just learning to forgive what's happened and not letting it control the rest of your life. But it may not mean that you need to go back into that, that kind of a thing, all right? But in most cases, most of us, it's not that. For most of us, we, we, we're deeply hurt by what somebody did to us. Sometimes it's a, somebody hosed us in business. Sometimes it's a divorce. Sometimes it's a, uh, you know, uh, something that uh, somebody really took advantage of, stole money from us, did something that really hurt the relationship, or they just said bad things about you, right? Or they rejected you, or they did something that uh, uh, so when I ask you to call that to mind, it's usually not a relationship in which you were the perpetrator, my guess is. 90% of you thought about a time where you were the victim in the relationship. Not the one who did something to somebody else, but I was the one who had something done to me. Now that orientation is, is, is not wrong. I mean, we, it goes both ways, right? But given the choice, I would highly prefer to think about how you wronged me than about how I might have wronged you in some particular point, okay? And the reason for that is, if I, if I do do that, I, if, I, if I focus on my own wrongs toward other people, that may require me apologizing or confessing my sins or repenting or doing something like that. All of those are far less appealing to me than blaming you. So I would highly prefer to spend my time thinking about the injustices done to me than thinking about the injustices that I've done to somebody else. Now, there is a, because then, too, apologizing for a lot of people is really, really hard. I ran across an article uh, some years ago in the New York Times, and, and the headline on it was, Paying Others to Apologize. 
And it says, it's much easier for a Westerner to say sorry than compared with a Chinese person, claims, I'm going to try this here, Zhou Zhaojing. I don't know how I did. Some of you help me with that later. A sociology professor at the People's University in China. She says, as a society, China lacks the spirit of apologizing. I read that and I go, yeah, they're the only ones that have a problem with apologizing. (laughs) I think America does just fine at that too. Uh, That it's like, the difficulty with apologies has given rise to the Tanjin Apology and Gift Center, a company whose task it is to apologize to others for you. You pay them, okay, to apologize for you. So, husbands, let's just say it's 7-Eleven over there across the street. You could go in and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, I left my underwear on the floor again today. Here's five bucks. Can you tell her I'm sorry? And so somebody from 7-Eleven gets on a bicycle, drives to, rides to your house and says, hey, your husband wants you to know he's very sorry. Okay? I mean, come on. Like, that's a, that's a, but that, the, here's the, the, the company's slogan is, we say sorry for you. <laughs> I mean, you sit there, you go, uh, you go, okay, culturally, I kind of get why that could be difficult, right? In honor and shame kind of culture and stuff like that. But, but in, in a Christian perspective, right? From a Christian perspective, we are supposed to be in a position where confession of frailty or, or not of sinning against somebody else is okay. The reason, I don't mean it's okay to, to do the wrong, it's okay to repent. It's okay to confess. There's an acknowledgement that, that there were, there's a community of grace at work here and that one of the tasks we've been given is reconciliation. So that when I confess my sin to my brother or sister, that's an effort at doing what God wants to see happen right? As opposed to it being the criminal sin to do something wrong. So that, that whole idea of me not wanting to apologize, me, you not wanting to apologize, us having a hard time apologizing to, apologizing to each other is tricky, and it's tricky in part because of pride. Here's what I mean. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story. A woman uh, bursts into this room. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. She throws herself down at his feet, weeps on his feet, wipes his, uh, pours ointment on his feet, and wipes the mess with her hair. Simon, the name of the Pharisee who's hosting the dinner, is, he goes, well, this guy's clearly not a prophet because she's a woman of the city, and he'd know that if he were really a prophet. Jesus says, oh, whoa, 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 Simon, let me, let, me, let, me, let me point out something. When I came into your house here, you didn't even offer me something to wipe my own feet. This woman has come in and done something very great. She's done something, and the reason is and he goes, there's a, he goes, imagine, Simon, that you have two people, and they each owe a sum of money. One only owes a little bit, and one owes a lot. Both of them are forgiven the debt. Who do you think is going to be more grateful? Simon goes, well, probably the guy that was forgiven him, a big debt. He goes, bingo. This woman, he says in Luke 7, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now that, to me, uh, go ahead and go back a slide. Um, there we go. Okay, that, that little line about forgiveness, okay, is t- he's saying that the reason that she is so humble and the reason that she's doing what she's doing is because she knows she's been forgiven a lot. And those who don't feel like they've been forgiven much don't do much of that. We have swagger. We don't feel like we need to apologize. 
what I need to apologize for. I didn't do anything wrong. And what he's doing is pointing to her and saying, you know, you, this is how a person acts when they've been forgiven a lot. So it could be that when we're given the ministry of reconciliation, one of the things that keeps us going on it, keeps us passionate about it, is getting closer to the gospel. The reason is, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I'm aware, consciously on a daily basis, of how much I've been forgiven, which then causes me to walk with more humility when I go into conflicts with people or I'm tempted to focus on how great their sins are toward me while I ignore the big mountain of my own that's over here that's been forgiven by God. Okay? Um, at the root of a lack of forgiveness is usually, usually, not always, but usually, it's pride. The closer we get to Jesus, the greater our capacity to forgive. And we have all been forgiven far more than we can ever forgive another human being. Jesus tells a parable, I alluded to it last week. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's everybody's least favorite parable in the Bible, for the most part. Parable of the unforgiving servant goes like this. Once there was a man, and he was forgiven a very large debt by somebody. It's like, thank you. Now, in those days, if you had debt, you would, were thrown in prison until you paid it off. I don't know how they thought they would pay it off in prison, but that was how it went. That's kind of ancient extortion of the family and everything else, right? So he's like, please, 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 I got a wife and I got kids, please, I don't want to go to jail. He says, okay, I'm going to forgive your debt. So he forgives it. That guy then leaves. Somebody owes him just a little bit of money, and he has him thrown in prison. Well, this guy finds out about it. He says, go, go get that guy and bring him back here. And so he says, now I'm going to throw you in prison. It, it, it throw him in, in prison until he pays back every last penny. Okay, the point of the parable is, Okay, when you're forgiven as much as you are by God, there is a, a, an eternal claim put on your ability to hold grudges and resent others. Now, we can cry about it, we can whine about it or whatever, but we don't get to make the rules here. This is something that God gave us, reconciliation with himself. And as I said earlier, you will never forgive somebody else more than you've been forgiven by God. Okay, that math, you don't want that math, all right? As much as you've wronged God in every way, shape, and form, and then could go, well, yeah, but they hurt my feelings. So I'm not, I haven't talked to them in 20 years. And what do you think that accomplished? You think it made God happy? To make your life better? Is the idea to punish them that, so they pine away for 20 years? sitting around every day wishing they could talk to you, but you freeze them out. And meanwhile, God's over here going, after all I forgave you, I think he just finds that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, blasphemous, sinful, hypocritical. So what I'm saying is, from a biblical standpoint, a Christian worldview would say, I surrender my right to, to not forgive my enemy at the cross. One of the things that washes off me in the baptistry, in the ocean, okay, is all the grudges I've been holding toward other people. It, it goes. It has to go. And the thing that I think people don't realize, and you can see it when, that, when it happens, sometimes that's a part of why people throw their arms in the air when they come out of the water, is because it did wash off of them. They're getting their first real experience of grace because they haven't had much of it in their life. 
But now they're experiencing it. They realize how it feels, and they realize that doing the other, I mean, you've heard the old axiom probably about, you know, it's like uh, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. My experience is it's a little more like inhaling smoke and never exhaling. You're just like there. You can feel it. Your lungs is burning. It's killing you. But I'm fine. Relationship's great, you know. And as you choke on the bitterness, and the resentment, and the rage, you think Joseph would have felt better if he had thrown his brothers in the pit to give him a taste of it and not been reconciled to his brothers? You think he would? So, let me go back to that question. How would you want the story to end? How do you want that story to end? The one that I asked you about at the beginning. Third, he's given us the, the mission of reconciliation, okay? This is a very familiar passage to those of you who, who've been in the church a while, but I want to stop and highlight a couple lines, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying, you now are the ambassadors of reconciliation. You are in the reconciliation business, helping people be reconciled to God and one another. We are a community of reconciling machines that we ought to be. Now, now it doesn't all depend on us. People that are on the other side of these things, okay, we can't do the work for them. They're responsible for their own actions and, and their own behaviors. But we need to do the, our part in as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We talked about last week, right? Okay, but, but what often happens is when people encounter God, they hear us talking about the graciousness of God, how good he is, how loving he is, how forgiving he is, but then we're not forgiving people. We hold grudges, and we're, we're not gracious in how we respond to people. Let me ask you this. How can we expect people to believe in the forgiveness of their sins by God when they don't experience the forgiveness of his people? Let me say that again. How can we expect people to believe in the forgiveness of their sins by God when they don't experience the forgiveness of his people? The root of it goes back to my experience of the grace of God. Thomas Edison, they used to, when they were first developing the light bulb, uh, they used to take hundreds of hours to produce one light bulb. So in the development, when they were getting really close to finishing this up and being able to mass produce these things, it still took hundreds of hours. He gave it to a, a guy in the shop, and he said, hey, I need you to take this upstairs to the, to the people, uh, the distributors or whatever. So he takes the light bulb, and he's running up the stairs, he trips, and he drops it, and it breaks. Hundreds of hours of work down the toilet, 
all the workers in the office are like. You know, they're all mad. I don't even know what curse words they used back then. I'm sure they were flying around, though. And they were mad. So anyways, he says, all right, team, back to work. We need another bulb. So everybody's, I imagine they're just around the shop. Hundreds of hours go by. They finally produce the, the next bulb. And he takes it, and he gives it to the same guy. And he says, now, kindly take the bulb up the stairs, carefully, please. And so he takes it, and he goes upstairs. And then there's this wonderful little uh, kind of writing and, and reflection by the guy who was asked to take the bulb the second time, okay? And it's an experience of grace, right? Think about this. All the different things that God has given you. I got it. On the ground, right? Okay, Tim. Here's another one. Carefully this time, please. I got it. On the ground. In some ways, you could say that's almost what life is like. Like, it's got me taking the different things that God's given me, the, the blessings, right? The, the family, the, the, any gifts of the Spirit that I have, any uh, time, talent, treasure, any of that stuff. He's given it to me, and I continue to mess it up over and over again, and yet he never takes me out of the game. He never says, I'm done with you. You're through. You know what? I'll go get somebody who can do a better job walking up the stairs or whatever. He keeps asking me and inviting me in, right? That's a part of what the ministry of reconciliation is. It doesn't mean you look past the, the fact that the bulb broke. It just means that that's not the end of the story, right? Reconciliation acknowledges that part of being who we are means we are not perfect. If we were, no need for Christ to come. But we do have a loving, compassionate, gracious God who is bent on reconciling people to himself. So then when they do something wrong to me, when they, when they do something that offends me, uh, they, they're sharp with their tongue, they are mean to me, they, they do something awful. I mean, look, uh, pastors get, get, get dinged up a bit working with people because we are often involved in the conflicts between other people. And sometimes that stuff gets really weird, but can you imagine how weird and hypocritical it would be to, have, to, 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 to presume to be a proclaimer of the Word of God and then still hold grudges against people, even as I tell them they ought to forgive, even though God's forgiven me a mountain of stuff? I mean, at some point, are there things that should never be forgiven? I really don't think so. I, I think the parable of the unforgiving servant is a call away from the cultural disaster that we are creating right now in our society. It is a conscious call for Christians to say, you know what, I'm not gonna get in that one. I'm not gonna stir the pot. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that and try and divide people. I'm gonna try and do something instead I'm not going to pick up the picket sign and go after the guy's sausage stand, or I'm on Team Lemonade, and if you're on Team Sausage Stand, then we're done. Nope. We're supposed to be the mayor. Does that make sense? We're the mayor. We're saying, hey, listen, I know you got a sausage stand to operate. I know that you kids just want some pocket money, and you're selling lemonade because your parents are making you earn your money, and they're trying to teach you good lessons about whatever. Can we, how about this? What if we tried this? I mean, are we under the illusion that we're creating a better world right now? 
I'll have that debate with anybody. I don't, I don't think most people would, if we were a stock ticker symbol, that we'd be green and the line would be soaring upward. I mean, at best, this thing is duct taped together right now. And I think this is a great moment for God's people to lead the way on something that's extremely, extremely important. And they'll know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love, the old song goes. Um, five quick things. Um, these are more how-tos. They are rooted in Scripture, but I don't have time to... Um, I have red numbers flashing at me, which means I'm, I'm, they're about to get the cane and pull me off, or the symphony's going to start playing behind me. So um, here we go, okay? Um, there's a caveat to everything I'm saying. If, if you're a victim of... Of, a, of an abusive kind of situation or whatever, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? This is not a go back into that relationship or, or whatever. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about most of the things that actually plague us on a daily basis. Political foes, ideological foes, family members that were rude to us or didn't treat us properly at the right time, the, the more normal stuff of earth. Uh, here they are. Number one, keep growing in your faith. Well, how would that help reconcile? Because our faith has a bias toward grace, and it keeps the gospel at the center. The more I'm thinking about God's grace toward me, the less I think about how little grace I should show you. Does that make sense? Number two, begin with yourself. Don't, don't say, yeah, it's great. It's time for you to forgive me. <laughs> okay? Begin with yourself. Don't begin trying to reconcile by getting somebody else to apologize to you or getting... Uh, or, or getting them to change, okay? First of all, you're not, you're, you can't change other people. That's a fool's errand. And you're not responsible to God for them. You are responsible to God for your own heart and your own actions, so lead the way. Begin by apologizing, asking for forgiveness from those that, that you may have hurt, okay? The other thing is that, again, holds up your own frailty. I have sinned against other people, which humbles you. So when you go then into something where you've been hurt, you walk a little bit more humbly into that situation, now, sometimes reconciliation is not possible. That is then the time for forgiveness. That's when you just go, you know what? We're not going to be able to work this out. I understand that. I forgive you. I'm just going to forgive it. I'm getting closure on it, and I'm moving on. I'm going to forgive you as God forgave me. Now, that means if you don't want to talk to me the rest of your life, I can't help that. But I'm here. You know, um, as much as it depends on me, I'm going to be one to reach out, but if you don't want to, then you don't want to. Can't control that. But I've done my part, and hopefully God's happy with that, okay? Um, next, set the table. That means, you know, when you set a dining room table, there's a way, supposedly a way that you do it, right? That's the right way. You need to have, for, for reconciliation to take place, there need to be God-honoring boundaries in place. You don't want to just repeat a sinful cycle of behavior. So it's, it's hey, you know, can we do... Um, you know, from now on, can we try to do this instead of that? Because if all we're doing is regurgitating the same sinful behavior that we've always done, that's not going to bring honor to God. So if somebody's wronged the other person, then the right, the right path is through repentance and uh, reconciliation. But that doesn't mean that then, oh, okay, well, I forgive you. And then they come back and they just offend again and again and again without that being pointed out, right? So in these situations where you've got one person who's clearly the offender all the time, and you've got somebody who's on the receiving end all the time, there, there, there need to be some boundaries put in place that, that understands that w what we're aiming for here is a better relationship, not uh, a get-out-jail-free card for everybody all the time to just continue to victimize whomever. That's not what it is. 
So here's, here's how we need to try and do this different going forward. Um, so we're still committed to forgiving as God in Christ forgave us, but God on our reconciliation honors the Father's will, okay, at all times. It seeks God's will and, it, and, it, uh, uh, and his grace toward us, okay? Uh, next, be patient. Uh, be patient. Uh, I, I often have done a lot of work with addicts over the years, and sometimes what happens is for 10 years they put their family through a meat grinder, and then they'll find the Lord and go back to their house and get mad at their parents for not forgiving them just like that or being a little suspicious of them or, or whatever. You gotta be patient with these things. Uh, and, and so God has been patient with us. Uh, we, we can be patient with other people, give, give you know, deep wounds, heal slower. So it may take a little bit of time. Use judgment, use wisdom, use the Holy Spirit's guidance and how you, how you approach these things and be patient with it. And then lastly, when reconciliation happens, you're rarely gonna find a scene in scripture where reconciliation happens and there's no celebration afterwards. Joseph here, right? What do they do? Boom! Even the first time his brothers come, they have a big dinner and they sit down. It's like, give Benjamin five times the food that everybody else gets because I haven't seen him yet. And I'm excited Benjamin's here. Prodigal son comes home. Father, hey, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate the end of time. We all end up in heaven and gather around the throne. Guess what's happening? There's worship and there's celebration going on. So when, when reconciliation takes place, celebrate that. Like, experience the beauty of it and the joy of it. Like, Joseph grabbing Jacob's neck, and it says that he held him a long time. Like, he's, he's, he's going in for the hug. He's got the hug. Jacob ain't going anywhere. Jacob's 130 years old. He couldn't get out of it if he tried. <laughs> right? So, Joseph's got his dad, and he's, and he's hugging him, and he's celebrating the fact that they're back together. So, even when one sinner repents, we're told the angels rejoice. Their celebration and reconciliation are tied together. All right, so I'm out of time. We've got to stop. But, but um, next week, uh, we're going to look at old man Joseph uh, when he's, uh, he's still got the vision, the original dream that God gave him, and he still believes that it's going to be followed through. Um, so come back for that next week. Right now, we're going to gather around the Lord's table with bread and cup. This is the reconciliation meal of meals right here. Bread and cup representing the body and blood of Jesus that were, were given for us, for you. So just as God in Christ forgave you, now we forgive those who sin against us, right? We forgive, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, so this morning, oh, let's begin around the table celebrating the beauty and the splendor of the grace of God toward us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, now with bread and cup, we say thank you. Uh, we acknowledge, Father, that we often, uh, we often hold grudges. We resent. We hate. We, we gossip and slander. We, um, we're quarrelsome. We like to take out our anger on people. Uh, and Father, we ask that just as you have forgiven us, that we learn how to forgive those who sin against us. And that, Father, we would be people who are as committed to reconciliation as you are, that we do imitate you, who showed us the way by reconciling us to yourself and the person and work of Jesus. That even though for a good man someone might die, that you show your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We remember that now with bread and cup. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.